Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room podcast. From the change in attitudes to workplace illness post-pandemic to updated legislation on sick pay and sick leave, the topic of workplace sickness has seen some developments and is a challenge that all employers and employees will inevitably face. So what do we need to know? Well, to talk about this topic today, we're delighted to be joined by Karen Killalee, partner and head of the employment team at Maples and Calder in Ireland. Thanks for joining us, Karen. How are you? Good morning, Owen. I'm great. Thank you. Brilliant stuff. And as always, we're joined by our very own Mary Cullen, founder and managing director here at Insight HR. How are you, Mary? I'm great. Thanks. And you're very welcome, Karen. Delighted to have you here today. Thanks, Mary. Uh, Really appreciate being invited to come and discuss this very topical subject with you this morning. Absolutely. So let's let's jump right in. So I'll come to yourself first, Karen. So I suppose there has been, as I mentioned, there a couple of key updates to the law, I suppose, around kind of sickness in the workplace, that kind of stuff. Can you give us a quick reminder of the updates? Yeah, absolutely. So from uh, many employees' perspectives and, and you know, employers' perspective also, the Sick Leave Act, uh, which came into force, if you like, in July of this year, but is not actually going to be commenced until January of next year, is is good news. It's a good protection for, for employees, particularly lower paid employees, Owen. And um, it kind of brings us in line, to be honest, with a lot of our European neighbours. And it was we were a bit of an outlier not to have a statutory sick pay scheme. So what I can do is spin through just some of the key points from that legislation. Uh, you know, most people will be familiar with it, but no harm just to recap, I suppose, on, on the following. So it's going to apply to all employees and agency workers who have at least 13 weeks service. Okay, so there's a little bit of a lead-in period, which is which is also um, good. And I think from an employer's perspective, that's that's welcome. Um, so, so basically what the legislation is providing for is an entitlement both to statutory sick leave and to statutory sick pay. Now, we will see regulations in due course, but as most listeners will know, it's been widely reported that basically statutory sick pay is going to be 70% of an employee's daily rate up to a max of €110 per day. So look, that's, as I say, it's kind of, this is targeted at the lower paid workers. So it's it's definitely a welcome support. A couple of other pieces I think that are, uh, that people may well be familiar with, but also good to know. Um, what's going to happen is this is going to be rolled out incrementally. So the entitlements to statutory sick leave and statutory sick pay are going to increase over the next sort of four, three to four years. Starting in January, uh, as I said, when the legislation is due to be commenced, employees will have an entitlement to three statutory sick leave days uh, and, and therefore three days of statutory sick pay. That's going to increase to five days in 2024, seven days in 2025, and then it takes a, a big enough jump to 10 days, so 10 pay days in, in 2026. Um, so look, it, it, it is all the sort of bells and whistles of, of a typical piece of employment protection protection legislation. Um, you know, employers have to keep records about their compliance with the scheme. 
there's anti-retaliation protection for employees. So in other words, if you're asserting your right to it and then your employer has an adverse reaction and, you know, demotes you or transfers you to, um, you know, Siberia or something like that, uh, then there's protection from that. So uh, as I mentioned, at the moment, it's not in force. So the traditional if you like, um, sickness benefit rules apply. So there's a waiting period for employees at the moment. Once they've passed that waiting period, they can then apply for state illness benefit. So that's kind of a whistle-stop tour of, of what the new act looks like. Brilliant stuff. And Mary, this might be a bit of a, I suppose, a kind of a blue sky question, but I suppose why has there been updates to this area this year? Is it kind of, I suppose, attitudinal based on the pandemic or have these changes been, I suppose, a long time coming, Mary? I think they've been a long time coming, really, Own, um, I mean, if you look across the waters to the UK, they've had statutory sick pay in place for quite some time. So it really has been coming, um, you know, for for a very long time. But I guess from an attitudinal perspective, maybe employers' attitude towards sickness has changed somewhat, you know, as, as, I suppose as a badge of honour, uh, pre-pandemic, people would have been um, telling you that they would struggle into work one way or the other and carry on doing their job no matter how sick they were. And there was a lot of, I, I suppose, um people out there who felt that, you know, you have a cold, you can come to work. You have a, a bit of a cough, you can come to work. And now socially, that's unacceptable, really. Um, and people are fearful when somebody arrives with a, a runny nose, a cough, a cold, a, a fever, a headache, any of those kind of things. So I think attitudinally, things are changing from uh, an employee and employer perspective. But you know, when we look at uh, paying people um, who are absent uh, due to illness or injury, um, you know, there is a cost for their, the employer. That's just a fact. And for a lot of the, uh, I suppose, industries that employ low paid workers, this is an additional cost for them. A lot of other organisations already have schemes in place um, and good sick pay schemes where, you know, full salary costs might be covered for a period of time um, before uh, some kind of an insurance scheme kicks in to provide longer term cover for them. So, you know, I, I guess it, it just depends on the employer and what they, they have in place. But attitudinally, I think things have changed um, and I think that'll be with us for a while. Mm, absolutely. And Karen, I'd like to, I suppose, get a little bit deeper into absences and that kind of stuff, maybe talk about different kind of types and levels of absences. So I suppose, Karen, many employers most frequently deal with those kind of sporadic short-term absences, which are normal, let's say. So what are some of the kind of obligations of both the employer and the employee when it comes to those short-term kind of absences? Yeah, sure. Ha happy to, to deal with that. And, and really just to follow on from Mary's point, which is which I absolutely agree with, like there has been a sea change in attitudes towards illness and that sort of factors into the response to, to your question about how do you deal with sporadic short-term absences. And I think maybe a good way, the sort of the point of departure, the good way to, to respond to this is, is just to remind everybody that trust and confidence is actually a key part of any employment contract. It's an, there's an implied term of trust and confidence between the parties. So what I would say, given the shift in, in attitudes over the past probably two years or so, it, it is 
important for employers to, first and foremost, to be sort of sympathetic and to be supportive and not to confuse sporadic absences with anything else that may be going on in the background, you know, performance issues or grievances or or anything else. The, The point of departure is, look, this happens, people get ill and they're out. And I would sort of, you know, leave it be. Generally for sporadic short-term absences, there are not really many action points, to be honest, Owen. Obviously, you need to take a look at the policy. Obviously, if you're on notice of something that looks a little bit odd. So, for example, uh, we have a client who we're helping at the moment. They have literally presented a PIP document, so a performance improvement plan document to an employee who has who has complained of of, of grievances and and sort of allegations of bullying and, and so forth. And that employee has now departed on on sick leave. That's kind of an extreme case. And there was no pattern of of sickness or absence before this. So okay, that's going to raise a little bit of a red flag, but still you have to give people time and time and space. So leaving aside those more unusual situations typically you need to take it at face value, obviously follow the policy. If the absence continues, get the certification in accordance with the policy, treat people consistently in terms of, you know, whether you actually follow up for certification and uh, and, and so forth. And then in due course, perhaps you'll need to send the person to Oc Health. But basically that's kind of entry level stuff. It's a very uh, common occurrence and, and probably in the vast majority of cases, no no cause for concern. Absolutely. So you've kind of alluded to it there as well, Karen, but what about when these short-term absences, I suppose, kind of turn to more frequent absences? Are there considerations there for employers in particular? Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, something particularly for a smaller or medium-sized employer where those sporadic absences turn to frequent absences, but not frequent enough such that you need to actually operationally pivot and maybe get in a temporary resource, but but just frequently sort of, you know, every week or every two weeks or even every month, it's hugely disruptive. We have worked with many, many clients over the years in, in a wide variety of sectors from manufacturing where you're trying to resource a manufacturing line and there are shifts to you know, financial services, which is very office-based, but you might have month-end reporting requirements. It's a huge, huge frustration for employers when they are facing and trying to manage very frequent but short absences. But again, the point of departure is employees who are on sick leave and in particular employees whose whose sick leave is driven by or caused by a recognized disability, those employees, you know, quite rightly, and, and few enough employers would disagree with this, are entitled to protection and support. And if you like the sort of legal term for that is is reasonable accommodation. So the the initial response cannot be a, a, an aggressive response or a response which is not focused on supporting that employee and ensuring that that employee can, uh, you know, A, have their their role, if you like, preserved and remaining open for them, but B, that they are facilitated to return to work. So, for example, employers who have, you know, large-scale resources who are considered to be very big employers, even though they might have a small office or business in Ireland, if they're part of a bigger group, they still will carry a a higher and heavier burden to do everything that is reasonably possible in order to um, support that employee and bring them back to work. But again, what, what I would say is, you know, watch the record keeping, make sure the certification is there, conduct return to work meetings. Don't be afraid to have the conversation with the employee, but the conversation needs to display a desire to 
keep the business running operationally smoothly, mindful of other colleagues, is empathetic to the employee's position, but does not reveal a frustration or does not reveal a, a responsibility that is being pushed onto the employee to get all of the work done when they are back. So I think those are probably the, the key tips in that regard, looking at long-term absences, that's obviously a different matter and we can we can talk about that also. Yeah, absolutely. That's a perfect segue to my next question, I suppose. And I just want to ask both of you, but I might come to yourself first, Mary, if that's okay. Long-term absences, challenge for employers, in addition to obviously what the employee is going through. Let's, let's be honest and clear about that. But Mary, what are the key things to consider here from the employer perspective when it comes to those long-term absences, in addition to what Karen has kind of kicked us off with there? Well, I would really echo what Karen says, um, you know, obviously from a HR perspective, the HR function is typically responsible for advising line managers around the absence of their employees, whether that's short term or long term. But we often get asked the question about, you know, how, how soon can we do something? How soon um, should we stop paying someone? How soon should we, um, you know, send somebody f- to occupational health and in what circumstances? And, you know, what if we feel the employee is incapable of coming back to work and, you know, resuming their full duties? What should we do then? Can we dismiss the person? And as I always say to our clients, you know, we've got to look at everything from your sporadic absences. Uh, Is there a pattern? Is there something that we need to deal with? Uh, You know, has somebody ended up taking 300 um, days out of the year sick and, and coming in here and there, um, is someone manipulating a scheme? Is somebody um, behaving in a way that uh, is is cynical as opposed to being genuinely sick? And, you know, as I always say, the, the devil is in the detail, it's in the data, the data that you're collecting. So it comes back down to your systems and how you're managing your systems, how you're managing somebody's absence and what the communication processes that you have in place are. The very worst time you can talk to an employee about um, stopping their pay is just after they've had a really serious accident or injury um, or illness. and you know, you may not be able to maintain um, salary for long periods of time, but these things need to be thought out in advance and set out in your policies and procedures so the employee know what's happen- what is happening and you know what is happening. And that specifically, I think, applies to your small and medium businesses. It's often that in those organisations where those things aren't thought out well enough and somebody's coming saying, you know, We've been very sympathetic. Somebody has cancer. We paid them for the last six months. Um, We need to stop paying them because we need to replace them. And what will we do now? Um, And maybe somebody who's had a a mental uh, health issue and who's absent for six months doesn't get the same kind of treatment. and, And there's an immediate issue around the treatment of one employee versus the other employee, understanding one illness versus not understanding another. Um, And in real terms, it comes back down to your aim as an employer is to support people while they're ill, obviously, 
to pay them within the terms of your policies and procedures and then to manage their absence in a fair and consistent way if somebody is no longer capable of doing the job and you can't reasonably accommodate them then there is a very clear process for talking to that person about their uh, employment with the organisation, going to Arc Health and having them uh, give a medical opinion about the employee and the employee's ability to return to work or to return to work with temporary adjustments or to return to work with long-term adjustments. And at that point, it's it's up to the employer to look at what they can and can't do. But I'm sure Karen will be able to tell us about all the plethora of case law out there that um, where employers go very horribly, horribly wrong and find themselves in the media and paying out big awards for <laughs> things that they really got wrong at that point in time. So I might pass over to you now, Karen, for, for, for commentary on that. <laughs> Absolutely. I was just trying to quietly type a few uh, points because I had my own little bullet points about what, what we might talk about. But actually, you, you, you've raised the, the two points that I think are, are really worth spending a little bit of time on. The first is sick pay, as you said, and the second then is the duration of the sick leave. And basically, when is it safe to start saying to the employee, listen, I don't think this is going to work because we, we need our team to continue and, and you know, you're not fit. And, you know, it's a, it's a harsh conversation. So maybe let's look at sick pay for first. I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and I have to say, in my experience of over two decades working in employment law, it is really rare to see an employer who wants to take a harsh position, regardless of the scale of the business. To, to be fair, most employers have that sort of human intuition to want to support somebody who has a critical illness, okay? The problem is, I suppose, frequently that's not documented or the reasoning for it is not documented. And many, many employers will have what, what you can loosely term discretionary sick pay policies. So they'll say, look, you know, you're entitled to maybe 10 days sick pay and anything else is, is at the employer's discretion. Sometimes what's overlooked is it, where you put that in to a policy, you, you then are also subscribing to exercising that discretion reasonably. So you have a legal obligation to exercise that discretion reasonably. So that means if on previous occasions you have paid people over a six-month period, which is a huge cost for, for a small or, or mid-sized business, even for a large business, then the next time the situation comes up, you've already exercised your discretion we would say reasonably to support someone for six months and then you don't do it the next time. Well, why are you not doing it the next time? And what's different about this occasion versus the last occasion? And then you need to be careful that you're not saying something like, oh, well, they're just fixed term because obviously you can't discriminate against fixed term workers or, you know, that person is close to retirement or that person is a very young graduate. So you just need to be careful. As you say, Mary, you need to think very carefully about what you're doing. And sometimes I think the best sick pay policy to have is the one that says, this is your sick pay entitlement, end of story. And and it's always open to you to, to be more generous on a case-by-case -case basis. Now, it is very common to have a discretionary sick pay policy and many employers want to 
uh, you know, demonstrate that that is what they do. And if you come to work for us, we will support you even if you're ill. Okay. So I would say, yes, just be very clear about the reasons why you maybe deviate from your policy and, and pay more sick pay so that there is a consistent methodology. Second thing I would say then just in relation to your point, I mean, you're absolutely right. Countless times HR teams have come to us and said, look, someone has been out for you know, two or three weeks or someone has been out for 12 months and what do we do? What is the the safe period beyond which you can really start to have those conversations? And I think what I'd probably do is, is answer that by reference to two points, which are very, very well established in the case law and which guide us on how to respond to these situations. And the first is you really cannot take any decision in relation to the termination of an employee's employment by reason of capability, so by reason of their inability to come to work due to illness, unless you have two things. Number one, you have, if you like, brought the employee on the journey with you, which by that I mean that you have consulted with the employee. Now, in a meaningful way, on a regular basis over the course of the illness. So obviously you're not going to be harassing the employee when they're not able to deal with you. But over the course of the absence, you do need to be in touch with the employee. And again, like I said earlier, the employer shouldn't be afraid to have those conversations. Like you you, you are entitled to run your business. You obviously need to be um, mindful of the employee, but you can have those conversations. So that's the first thing you need to get. The voice of the employee needs to be reflected. And the second thing is you absolutely need clear and up-to-date medical guidance. So you, you, you will make a footfault if you either encourage the employee to think about moving on without medical guidance or, or you give the impression that really there's just no point, this is doomed. And so therefore, Oc Health needs to come in and you need to ask Oc Health the right questions so that you get the right answers. And you know, is there a prognosis for recovery? You don't necessarily need to know what's wrong with the employee. You just need to know when are they likely to be able to come back, if ever, and what supports will they need? couple of interesting cases that were reported recently that I'll just deal with very, very quickly, which hopefully illustrate those two points. One was quite widely reported. The employee was awarded, I think it was €20,000. The claimant uh, was GK and the employer was a stockbroking firm. And you know, look, obviously, all I know is from what I can see from the report of judgment. But but in summary, the employer got into difficulty because the employee had a diagnosis of, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a chronic condition, a serious and chronic condition. The employee did have some performance issues before that diagnosis actually was revealed to the employer. But in essence, what happened after the employer was on notice of that diagnosis, which then was going to result in sort of longer term sick leave, the employer essentially said to her, look, this is all kind of pointless, really. I mean, with that diagnosis, it's, you know, really, I think you should just consider your position. It's going to be too tough for you in here. Now, I'm paraphrasing, okay, and there's a reported decision there, and I don't want to be unnecessarily highlighting the names of the parties, but it was widely reported in, in the media. And and in essence, the adjudication officer found when, when the employee brought this before the Workplace Relations Commission, you know, that was unacceptable behavior on, on the part of the employer. And, and in effect, 
what the adjudication officer found was that this employee had been discriminated against on the grounds of disability because but for her having that diagnosis, the adjudication officer found on the evidence that the employer would not have sat down and had that conversation with her and would instead have allowed her to go on to the PIP and finish that PIP and be supported. So as I say, significant enough awards there and, and also reputationally, you know, that was disappointing, no doubt, for the employer. It's a long, well-established employer and that's not good news for them. And then the other case that I just wanted to briefly mention that illustrates that Again, it's a case involving an employee BK against a technology company. And in that situation, again, the employee had a road traffic accident, was out for three or four months, caused enormous operational uh, congestion and, and pressure for the employer. But again, their response was not really textbook. Um, and, and, and what they did was they pretty much encouraged the employee, if you like, to leave by so dramatically changing the functions and responsibility that the employee had originally worked as a salesperson. And, and in effect, they, they said to the employee, look, you know, come back, work in the warehouse and you'll be doing manual handling. Now, not surprisingly, the employee was was not thrilled to, to hear that. And again, that is a good example of an employer that is not responding appropriately and and further responding in contradiction to the medical advice. So in some ways, that employer had consulted with the employee, had got the medical advice. So in some ways, they had ticked the boxes, but they then didn't follow through. They didn't listen to the employee. They didn't listen to the medical advice. And in that case, the employee was awarded €58,000, which is very, very substantial. So that's a rather long-winded way of saying I agree with Mary's points. <laughs> and, and those are sort of the examples from the case law that underpin that. It's important to cover them, I think. And I suppose case law like that does kind of tend to send the shivers down the spine of a lot of HR teams out there. So I suppose the big question, Mary, I'll come to you for this one. When it comes to trying to avoid those situations where companies up in front of the WRC or something like that, where they've, where they've made a big mistake. I suppose, what's the advice, Mary, for HR teams that want to update, improve, assess the policies and procedures they have in place? Yeah, you've got to start from the beginning. I mean, the worst time is when you're dealing with an individual who's absent for anything more than the odd day or two here or there due to a, a regular kind of uh, illness from which they're going to recover fairly quickly. So policies and procedures have to be thought through and not with individuals in mind or specific individuals in mind. I'm not a great fan of discretionary sick pay schemes simply because it, it depends on the view of a particular manager um, around the nature of somebody's illness. And this is particularly relevant, I think, when it comes to mental health issues versus a physical illness that might be better understood by the employer. Um, so again, of course, there's always the option to really look after someone who's had a stroke or who has cancer or who's going through a medical illness that is understood and maybe um, more broadly publicised and understood in the general world than something that's rare and unusual and that might be debilitating for someone, but we can't quite see it or can't quite understand it. Um, so my view generally is if you want to be generous as an employer to put in place um, 
insurance policies that allow for long-term cover when it comes to sick pay if you're in a position to do it. Um, otherwise, think about what you really want to do for your employees around their uh, illnesses because you know, as as a workforce ages, um, as you know, the demographic that you're dealing with changes, you may need to be looking at um, better um, sick leave policies and, and sick leave payment policies in, in the future. You've got the statutory, but if you want to go beyond that, which lots of employers do, you got to think it through very carefully. So that would be one thing I would say. And then when it comes to the management of um, long-term absence, we we see often that it's left and there's this vacuum of communication between the employer and the employee. Um, and, and, you know, irrespective of the size of the HR function, believe it or not, we still see that uh, just because you have a large HR team, it doesn't mean that these things are necessarily handled any better than they are in a smaller business. Um, but it really is about your approach to it and you know your use of occupational health if you don't ask the right questions uh, in the first instance then you know the doctor is only going to report on what you ask the doctor to report on so if you don't ask the right questions then you may not get the right answers but there's a difference between setting up the occupational health medical appointment to give you an answer you want to hear um, by feeding information that's not entirely correct or accurate in the first place as well. Um, and certainly we have seen that too in our travels. And I think there is case law there in relation to um, employers maybe cynically uh, presenting information to the, the you know occupational health and and getting the answer that they actually want so and and then it's what do you do you know how do you engage in those conversations it's really difficult because remember you're dealing with somebody who's ill or injured um, and in many cases you know they really want to return to work and maybe are holding on to the possibility of returning to work so those conversations are hard they're hard for HR to have, they're hard for managers to have. Um, and there are human beings at the, the back of all of those. So it has to be done sensitively, kindly, um, with respect for the individual, even if ultimately it's going to, the organisation is going to decide to terminate the uh, employment of that individual. Kindness goes a very long way when you're dealing with people. And so often, um, you know, employees come out of the woodwork when they hear, you know, the business might be sold, the, um, there's going to be some change, there's some restructuring happening. And employees in those circumstances, maybe where there's been that vacuum of communication, are really concerned about, well, what's going to happen to me? they're still your employee. Uh, you know, if you have failed to address somebody's absence and, and allowed them to be absent for two or three years without communicating with them, they're still your employees. You know, whatever you decide to do in terms of restructuring, transferring part of your business, your, your full business to another uh, owner, they're still your employee. You still have to address it. Um, so, 
I, I think one of the big things for me always is treating people with kindness, dignity and respect um, because you minimise the risk of them going out the door and speaking to an employment uh, law specialist or solicitor or, uh, you know, going to their trade union or um, if people feel they're being treated fairly, um, they usually respond accordingly. 100%. I suppose, as we always say, Mary, it's kind of that, that good start is half the work and something seemingly as straightforward as something like sick pay is obviously can be potentially quite complex. So it's fantastic to, to get that advice. And Karen, just on the point of long-term absences, anything to add there around, I suppose, kind of time limits, that kind of thing? Probably just one or two points. I mean, back to the earlier question and and um, subject that we were discussing. I mean, there's plenty of case law out there that makes it pretty clear that employers are expected to be patient with employees and to tolerate absences for, you know, 12 to 18 months. Now, that doesn't mean, as Mary said, that you you leave the employee sitting out there all of that time. You, you would be expected to engage with the employee. But in terms of an employer sort of reasonably accommodating the employee, it, it can be difficult to demonstrate that you've done everything possible to facilitate a return to work where you move to terminate in a relatively quick period. And and I would say a relatively quick period of time is, you know, six to nine months. And I know that sounds like a very, very long time when you're an employer, but if you look at the case law, there is no shortage of cases whereby employers have been criticized and have failed to defend their actions where they have moved to, to terminate on capability grounds before 12 months has elapsed. Now, there can be other infirmities there. You know, there was no medical guidance or or the employee was sort of left without any engagement. And the only other point that, that I would make is just in relation to businesses who do have long-term employees on their books who who everybody has sort of forgotten about. And that does actually happen. Um, and there was a case relatively recently about that, which confirmed, I think, which most people would already know that unless the employee actually resigns or is formally terminated, that long-term employee remains an employee. And, and sometimes this only gets flushed out if there's a redundancy or there's a liquidation of the employer or there's a chupi or sale of the business. So just just watch that. I mean, most HR teams will be acutely aware from their trackers and, and so forth as, as to who's on leave and for how long. But I've had more than a handful of cases over the years where someone has been out for eight or nine years and they're accruing rights. You know, they're accruing annual leave rights, they're accruing redundancy rights. So another good reason if we needed it just to stay in touch and to, and to properly manage long-term absences. 100% it's an important question to cover. I didn't want to, to finish up without missing out on that one. So thank you, Karen, for that as well. And thank you, Mary and Karen, I suppose, for a, a very insightful discussion again. Seemingly straightforward topic, but can be quite complex. So I hope everyone got some great advice from that. So thank you to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next week for the next installment of our podcast. So don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media channels. Do make sure to check the show notes for useful resources related to today's topic. We'll try and include some of those cases that Karen did speak about there as they're very useful to this topic. And as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us today at insighthr.ie. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, Karen. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. 
We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.